0: Church I'm going to wade out into some choppy waters here and um, just ask Merrick, am I wrong that coffee with the pastor is the first Sunday of the month, which would actually be next Sunday? today? Did you say next week? It's next week, just so we're all clear. <laughs> I might have heard completely wrong. I'm available to talk every Sunday, if you'd like to talk with me. By the way, if you're a guest, you know who I am. I'm Jace. I'm one of the pastors here. And I'm often wrong, and Merrick is often correcting me. That's what we pay him to do, one among many things. That's probably his hardest job, though, is keeping me straight. On the straight and narrow. Don't amen that. That was not the interactive part of the sermon. That comes later. Please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. I'm going to get in my lane. Stay there. Matthew chapter 19. Today we're continuing our study through Matthew's gospel. And in our passage today, Matthew 19, we're going to look at what Jesus teaches about marriage. So our title is Jesus and marriage. Two weeks ago, it was Jesus and gender This week, Jesus in marriage. Next week, Jesus and divorce. The week after that, Jesus in singleness. So, nothing controversial to see here. In fact, these topics are controversial, and that is because sinful humanity is at war with God. They are at war with God. The problem is, They can't get at Him. They can't reach Him. They've declared war on God, but they can't really attack God. How could they? He's infinite. They're finite. He's transcendent. They're not. So even though they've decided to war against God, to go on this great war campaign, they can march all day long, they can hoof it, even their whole life long, and Because he's infinite, because he's transcendent, they won't get an inch closer to him. Like the little kid who wants to take a swipe at his dad and his dad just holds him at bay. They war against God, but the problem is they can't reach God. So what do they do? What's their strategy? They've declared war on God, but since they can't reach him, they attack the closest thing like him, the closest thing to him. And the closest thing to Him are human beings made in His image. They can't attack God, so they attack the closest thing to Him and the things that look the most like Him, the things that remind, remind them the most of Him, so they attack human beings made in His image. This is what abortion is. This is what murder and racism are. This is what homosexuality and transgenderism, transgender mutilation is. It's what divorce and adultery are. Sinful humanity attacks men and women made in the image of God and they attack the two covenanted in marriage. It is the glory of God. So what should we do? What should be the Christian response to all of this? Well, arguments need to be made we need to get out there and lovingly confront with the truth that needs to happen and i'm grateful that it does happen i'm grateful for great books that are doing that i'm grateful for that you are doing that in your own context but to be clear that's not the front line of our defense that's not the bulwark of our defense We can lovingly confront with the truth and we need to do that. But the main of our defense, the real, the real strength in our defense is doubling down and glorying in God's good plans and designs. So think about it this way. Take something that you love, take something you love, you know, take something that puts a skip in your step. What is that? What makes your face shine? Think of your favorite food. Uh, think of your favorite song. Think of your favorite sport. Think of your favorite movie. You love it. You just you love it. And imagine someone along, comes along and they try to insult that thing that you love. You know, they try to tell me it's not glorious. Uh, you know, they come to me and they they try to insult Lord of the Rings. They're like you like you like what? And of course, I'm going to make a defense of sorts. I'm going to give them an argument for why it's just obviously the best. I'm going to try and help them see it. But whether they agree with me or not, what am I going to do? I'm going to go home, put on Lord of the Rings, and I'm going to glory in it. I don't care if they believe in it or not. It just is the best. You love football. I was in Ethiopia. They're like, why do Americans like American football? They asked the wrong guy. I was like, I don't know <laughs> to ask some people at my church. But you like football and people can criticize it and you're gonna give the defense for it, but then at the end of the day you're gonna go home and what? There's Jacob's telling me there's a game up for today and you're just gonna glory in it. Hopefully not sin, right? You're just gonna glory in it. You're just gonna enjoy it. So, back to gender and marriage. The most important defense we can make, the real bulwark of gender and marriage are not our arguments, as necessary as those are to make, but is our, or is the very fact that these things are glorious and we must be glorying in them. Yes, make the arguments. Yes, lovingly confront the truth. But more importantly, more foundationally, glory in manhood, glory in womanhood. And for our purposes most today, glory and the two becoming one in marriage. Listen, we have to be aware. This is kind of the flip side of this and the warning for our congregation. We have to be aware of the possibility of arguing for sexual differences, but not glorying in sexual differences. You know, get out there, argue, there are two sexes. There are only two sexes. We can make an argument for what is right, but then not really glory in those differences. Not really incarnate them, not really lean into them. You see, it's possible to fortify the the outer facade of Christian faithfulness, the outer walls of Christian faithfulness, all the while being hollow on the inside. We can argue for the rightness of marriage as God designed it—one man, one woman, committed for life. Put it on a bumper sticker, put it on the back of your car. You can argue for the rightness of marriage, but then not actually glory in it. Have a glorious marriage. Listen, our argument should not just be like marriage is right as God designed it. Our marriage should be. Or, I mean, our argument should be: marriage is glorious. Marriage is glorious. But to make that kind of an argument, what do you have to have? A glorious marriage. A glorious marriage. You're not going to convince me football is amazing because you write it down on a list and a piece of paper. You're going to invite me into the glory of a game. You're going to invite me into the glory of and so, as we look at Jesus' teachings today, we don't want to just think rightly about marriage. We want to, glee, we want to lean into the glory of it. It's wonderful. So, our text is Matthew 19, verses 3-6. through 6. I invite you to follow along as I read. This is what Holy Scripture says. And Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested Him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true, and wonderfully true. Well, the Pharisees came and tested Jesus with a question on divorce, a topic we'll look at in more detail next week. But the short of his answer is this. While there are biblical grounds for divorce, this was never God's intention. There are biblical grounds for a divorce, but this was never God's intentions. It's not God's ideal. What God intends, his ideal, is revealed at creation. There, Jesus explains, God made them male and female... So we looked at a couple weeks ago, and it's because they are created, male and female, that a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And I want you to notice the argument here that Jesus makes. Notice it very carefully. He strings two passages from the Old Testament, uh, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and he, he unites them together to make a very tight argument. One that's in Genesis 1 and 2, but Jesus wants to show it's a very tight argument here. So again, looking at verses 4 and 5, he says... Uh, or Jesus answered them, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, see how Jesus' ties these together? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So according to Jesus, the purpose of our different sexes, the purpose of our different sexes finds completion, and are being paired together in the two becoming one flesh. The goal of our different sexes is marriage, which is a union God creates and therefore man should not separate. This was God's original intention and it's still his intention and this is God's general pattern. Marriage is general. God's general pattern, which says, Nothing against those who, by gifting or providence, are single. We're going to talk about those in a couple weeks. Uh, I'm just acknowledging that they are the exception, not the rule. That's the exception, not the rule. God's general pattern is marriage. The way it usually goes, and the way he intends for it to usually go, is for a man and a woman to come together in marriage. And in that condition, that is the standard way of displaying the image of God. The standard way of displaying the image of God is not man separate and woman separate, but man and woman united together in marriage. So going back to the creation narrative, to one of the passages Jesus quotes in our text, Genesis 1, 27 and 28, we read, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. So pause there, we see here first, both men and women together are the image of God. Not one sex is excluded from this. Both are the image. They both manifest the image of God. It takes two to really get it out there, to really shine it forth. But then look at verse 28, continues on. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. We're going to come back to this verse a lot. So how do a man and a woman image God together in this world? Well, according to verse 28, it is ideally imaged forth in the context of marriage. It is ideally imaged forth in the context of marriage. God usually wants to display his image in this way, through a man and a woman joined in marriage. But what is marriage, you ask? Jace, what is marriage? Who defines it, and what is it exactly? Well, I'm glad you asked, because this brings us to point number one this morning. God defined marriage. This is what Jesus teaches in our passage, God-defined marriage. In verses 5 and 6, Jesus teaches us that from the very very beginning, God-defined marriage, and he defined it a certain way. Quoting from Genesis 2, Jesus tells us God's definition of marriage, this is it, it's a man, a man, you see this right in our passage, holding fast to his wife until God separates them. This is God's definition of marriage. Marriage. Period, full stop, this is it. It's a man, a man, single man, one man, a man, holding fast to his wife, single wife, one wife, until God separates them. Which is to say, until death do us part. Until death do us part. Marriage is a man holding fast to his wife, united to his wife, until God separates them. So... According to that definition, can a man be married to a man? No. Can a woman be married to a woman? No. There is no such thing as homosexual marriage. There is no such thing. It is a legal fiction. It is a social fiction. There is no such thing as so-called homosexual. Same sex marriage. So when I'm asked if I would attend a same sex wedding, my answer is no. My answer is is clearly no. It's sensitively no, but it's clearly no. I realize I say it's sensitively no because I realize this this will probably break hearts and might shatter relationships. But I won't attend because to begin with, it's not a wedding. It's not a wedding. God has defined marriage. It's a man holding fast to his wife until God separates them. Supreme Court doesn't define marriage. God defines marriage. We obey man as long as we're not disobeying God. And when it comes down to it, we obey God. So I'm not going to lie about marriage by going to a wedding that's not really a wedding. Second, I'm not going to attend because... Honestly, it'd be hateful for me to do so. It would. It would be hateful for me to. Do so. I'd be lying about marriage, and it would be hateful because I'd be confirming, at least on some level, a life and a lifestyle that will lead people to hell. The Apostle Paul, Apostle Paul, warns us very clearly: Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. First Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. They won't. They won't inherit the kingdom of God. A wedding is a celebration, and it would be hateful for me to celebrate a sin that if not repented of, sends people to hell. So no, I won't go to a same-sex wedding, but understand this, and if you're in that position, I hope you understand this. I hope this is your position as well. This is not me pulling away from them. This is not me pulling away from them. It's them pulling away from me. And it's them, more importantly, pulling away from God. And so we stand like the prodigal son's father. We stand right where we have always stood, watching, praying, with arms opened wide, ready to forgive anything as soon as they'll return. Jesus defines marriage as a man holding fast to his wife until God separates them. But if you'll, you know, if you'll make a bit of a hard turn with me, you know, if I can turn us a little bit here, I want to point out here what Jesus says, marriage springs out of what Jesus says, marriage springs, what it comes up out of marriage comes about by a man leaving his father and mother to hold fast to his wife. So let's take a few minutes to talk about courtship. Let's talk about dating and relationships. And all the bleary-eyed young people sat up a little straighter. To begin with, I prefer to call this process of a man getting to know a woman, which I'm tempted to go into song over, but I won't, of a man getting to know a woman and the two discerning if God would have them get married, I prefer to call this courtship instead of dating. And that's because I want to distinguish what God calls us to, which is a purposeful relationship, discerning if marriage is what he's calling us into, from what the pagan culture around us does, which is casual relationships, seeing what we fall into. So, you know, I imagine it like, you know, we want relationships where people are saying, what are you doing? Like, what what are you you doing? And we're saying, well, we're getting to know each other to discern if God is calling us to get married. Why? What are you doing? We're just going together. Exactly. <laughs> that's the difference. <laughs> that's the difference. There's intention, there's purpose. And so I want to distinguish what God calls us to from what the world around us is doing. So I prefer to call it courtship to kind of mark it out. And frankly, you know, if you want to know my advice, I would encourage you to do the same. I, I think that's a good thing to lean into. Uh, but that said, courtship includes dating so it includes going on dates so you know let's not get all wound tight about the name uh we're not out to play word police here uh, if you want to call it dating you can call it dating all day long uh, you know i don't really care uh, so much but i'll call it courtship now in genesis and through our lord's teaching we've seen how god defined marriage but we can also see here that he defined something of the basic shape of courtship He defines here something of the basic shape of courtship, of a man and a woman coming together for marriage. He gives a basic shape uh, to courtship and dating, and that shape is a man leaving his father and mother and a woman being given. That's what's in our text, quoting Genesis chapter 2. In the very first wedding ceremony between Adam and Eve, we're told God made Eve out of Adam, and then, the Bible says, he brought her to him. He brought her to him. God walked Eve down the aisle. He gave away the bride to which Jesus said or uh, Adam said bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh and the two became one flesh. So there's an there's an eight symmetrical shape to courtship. And again, this is this is it, this is grounded all this is grounded in the fact that we are made male and female. We we are created differently. We have different glories. Men leave and pursue while women receive and are given. And the Song of Song gives us a beautiful picture that is repeated throughout this image of, of a woman being a fruitful garden, which a man is seeking permission to enter and cultivate. A woman is a fruitful garden that a man is seeking permission to enter and cultivate. A woman is a fruitful garden that an honorable man wants permission from her and from her father to enter in and cultivate physically, but also emotionally and spiritually as well. So from this, we see the first act in preparation for marriage. The first act in preparation for marriage is a man preparing to leave his father and mother's home. It's a man preparing to leave his father and mother. And parents, this is what we raise our boys to do. To leave our homes. I hope to preach a sermon at the beginning of the year about launching teenagers. This is part of it. He prepares to leave his parents, usually physically, usually by moving out. But certainly, emotionally, intellectually, financially, and spiritually, he's preparing to make his own way in the world and be head of his own household. Now, I don't want to say when someone should start courting. What's the age, Jace? How old do they have to be? I, you know, 17, 18, 19, 20? Wisdom is needed here. Okay? There is no one-size-fits-all. There is no paint-by-numbers to this. Uh, wisdom is needed. But what I do want to say is that for the man, whatever his age is, there must be a track record of faithfulness and diligence. Things like paying his own bills, keeping up his grades, uh, you know, good references from employers. Uh, spiritually disciplined, he's in the Bible regularly. He's praying regularly. He's attending church faithfully. He's sacrificially serving others. The principle is he's governing himself well, such that such that it wouldn't be crazy to add someone else. To the equation. He's governed himself well. So it's not crazy to think about adding someone else to that equation. or and, and eventually many someone else's. Other someone else's. A man prepares to leave. And a woman prepares to be given. A woman prepares to be given. She prepares to be given away as a mother. As a mother. And I mean this in the broadest of terms. All women... All women ought to think, broadly speaking, that their mission is motherhood. It's to cultivate life in others. Physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Uh, Get this. Genesis tells us that Adam named his wife Eve. He named his wife Eve because, the text says, she was the mother of all living. Eve sounds like the Hebrew words word for life giver, life giver, and it resembles the word for living. And that's what a mother does. Whatever the context, she cultivates life in others. She is a life giver. Now think about this though, don't think about this in, in you know in very in very narrow ways. Uh, think about this in the Proverbs thirty one woman way. Right? It's broad, it's expansive. This woman didn't just make muffins and read Little House on the Prairie all day long. Nothing against muffins or Little House on the Prairie. But that's not what Proverbs 31 woman was doing, right? No, she ran her husband's estate, a king's estate, in all likelihood. She bought and sold real estate. She looked well to the way of her household. She fed and clothed her family. She opened her home to strangers. She reached out her hand to the needy. She was adorned in strength and dignity. She was well-versed in wisdom. The teaching of kindness was on her tongue. And she had the kind of faith in God that could laugh at troubles to come. Is that the kind of women we're raising? Parents, this is what we want to raise our daughters to be. And we need to do the work of preparing them to be given like that, To be that kind of a woman, just like we're preparing our boys to leave. We want to prepare our daughters to be mothers in the broadest sense. And young ladies, I just want to speak life into into you. If you'll let me mother you for a minute. This is what God made you to be. This is what God made you to be. It's at complete odds with what the world says you're made to be. It's at complete odds with it. It says you're to be just like boys. That you're to compete with boys. That anything boys can do... You can do better. And that's kind of true in a lot of ways. Uh, There are a lot of things you can do better than us boys. um, But that's not the point. That, That misses the point. The world says you're to be just like boys, that you're to compete with boys, that you can always do better than boys. But God says boys and girls are different. God says boys and girls are different. He says, male and female, I created them. And you women are something us men could never be. You are something else. else. You are givers of life in every way. You are mothers, and this is all something of the shape of courtship. It plays itself out in a certain way. A man leaves his father and mother, and a woman is given as a mother, and this is all under the umbrella of God defining marriage as a man holding fast to his wife until God separates them. God defined marriage, which brings us to point number two then. God also designed marriage. God designed marriage. In our text, Jesus teaches us something very important about how God designed marriage. It is more than the product of the will of the parties involved. You need to understand this about marriage. Marriage is more than the product of the will of the parties of the parties involved. Young people, you ought to really be taking notes on this one. You need to make sure you understand these things. We are so steeped in secular humanism that we really have taken on a sense of deity. (laughs) We really do believe that we are the creator of things. But the truth is, in God we live and move and have our being. So applying this to marriage, we think of it as something we create. We think of marriage as something we create and then God subsequently blesses. We create it, God blesses it. You know, we give our vows, we say, I, I do, we say, you know, I do, I do. And somehow that makes marriage, and then God blesses it. But that is to conceive of marriage as some kind of social contract that you enter into and your spouse will enter into. But God did not design marriage to be a contract, a social contract. He designed it to be a covenant. He designed it to be a covenant. And the differences are huge. Huge. So first, I'll show you this in our text, and then I want to I speak a little bit about those differences. In verse 5, again, quoting from Genesis 2, we're told, a man leaves his father and mother and he does what? What's it say? Holds fast to his wife. He holds fast to her. The old King James says, cleaves to her. Cleaves to her. The original Hebrew word means to unite or to stick something together. Kind of like with glue. To unite them. And elsewhere in the Bible, that same word means to unite someone through a covenant. It's covenantal language. It means to unite someone through a covenant. So God designed marriage to be a covenant. And we see this in several other places in Scripture. For instance, Malachi 2.14 says. The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Now in verse 6 in our text, we read, in verse 6 we read, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Think about that verse. Think about that verse for a minute. It teaches that God really does join us together. His hand does the joining. And interestingly, Proverbs 2.17 2, describes a wayward wife as one who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. That is the covenant she made before God. So the marriage covenant made between a man and a woman is one made before God. It is done before God and therefore with God as well as with the house. It's like a three-way pledge. And so to break faith with your spouse is to break faith with God at the same time. Which we'll come back to more next week when we talk about divorce. God designed marriage to be a covenant. It is a solemn bond and agreement between a man and the wife he holds fast fast to. It's a solemn bond and agreement that is ordained and sealed by God. Marriage is a covenant entered into by a man and a woman, ordained and sealed by God. It's bound by God and is a three-four cord then, not quickly broken. So, Do you view marriage as a contract or a covenant? Uh, We'll do a little bit of a quiz here, right? A little bit of a test. Um, Not by questions, but by just contrasting yourself to, to something I present. A contractual marriage is an I will if you exchange. I will if you. You're committed to meeting their needs so long as they meet yours. You'll do your part around the house so long as they do their part. You'll be sensitive to your wife's relational needs so long as she's sensitive to your physical needs. You'll give your husband respect so long as he nourishes and cherishes you. So here's how, here's how things break down. Let, let me illustrate all this. This is how things break down in a contractual marriage. And I'm, I'm borrowing a, uh, an illustration I've heard used before that, that I resonate with a lot. When a man has a problem... This is just getting to how men work, right? When men have a problem, uh, we generally try to fix it ourselves, right? Men, don't we, right? Like, you're lost. I don't know where I'm going exactly. We don't ask for directions. It takes us a long time to ask for directions. We want to figure it out. We, We want to fix this. We generally try to fix it ourselves. And when we can't, we reluctantly go for help. The trouble could be anything. It could be, you know, something's broken in the car, it could be a difficult teenager, it could be a problem at work. Confronted with a problem, a man is on a hunt for a solution. And talking to another man, asking for help, you know, I've run into this problem, I don't know exactly what to do, this is what's going on. The magical words we really want to hear is, well, you could try this. Have you tried this? Because the guy wants to go, he wants a solution suggested so that he can go and bring it about. So he can execute it, so he can do it. Now let's say that this man, this same man, this guy who's on the hunt for solutions, and if a problem persists and he needs help, then he wants someone to suggest a solution that he can go after. Let's say this same man goes home after work and finds that his wife has had an awful day. You know, the day of all days, she's had trouble with a capital T. And so sitting down together, he hears her out. He listens to her heart. He she pours out her problems, you know, and, uh, you know, and she can and she can pour out. You know, she does. She can. Um, And this is a glorious thing. This is not a critique. This is women, you know, uh, problems there. And man, can they they bring you into it? And so he's really listening to her pour out her heart. And finally, she t- she pauses, she takes a breath, you know, after 30 minutes she takes a breath. And he jumps in, eager to help, eager to do some good. And so <laughs> And so the poor chump says, "Have you tried?" You might want to try this. (laughs) I laugh because I've been there. (laughs) To which she replies, You're not even listening to me. (laughs) But he was listening. (laughs) And he's confused. He was listening very carefully. Only he approached her problem like a man. Yeah. At this point, I should qualify. Women want solutions too, and you know these are all generalizations. They're not always true. Um, but, but, but we all laugh for a reason, right? He tried to give her a solution, but she didn't want Mister Answer Man. She wanted a companion. She wanted a companion. So, what's the fallout from all this? What happens? We all know. He's mystified and hurt. She's wounded and angry. He reads that as disrespect and he pulls away. She reads his pulling away as emotional abandonment. And so she becomes very unloving towards him and increases her own critical spirit to which he either retreats further away from or explodes over and down the drain they go. Now, there's a lot this couple needs to work on, right? And and by that, I mean all of us. And no matter how many times we learn these lessons, we somehow find ourselves, you know, blowing up the same minds over and over again. But, you know, this is so much of, uh, you know, this is so much of marriage counseling. You know, we we get tripped up. We have to. So, what needs to happen here? Well, we need to remember that men and women work differently. We need to remember how we love each other differently. We remember need to remember our roles. We need to remember how to practice forgiveness. But let me suggest there's a deeper problem still underneath all this. A deeper problem that that often we don't work on. And it's how we are conceiving of marriage in that moment. That it's contractual. I will if you. I will if you. We give to get. It's a, it's a relationship by scorecard. It's tracking who is ahead and who is behind. What owed to who. But covenantal view of marriage approaches the relationship like this. I will because. I will because. Because I've set my love upon you. I will, I will love, serve, and forgive you because I've set my love upon you and I am loyal to you. A covenantal view of marriage is a solemn bond of love and loyalty. No matter what, a solemn bond of love and loyalty, no matter what. It's a committed love to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. The challenge in this, though, the challenge of a covenantal approach to marriage is what? That it leaves us very, it leaves us vulnerable. It leaves it leaves us very. Bu- We're committed to loving our spouse no matter what. We're committed to sacrificially meeting needs, even if we don't get anything in return. Covenantal love is challenging, but because it leaves us so vulnerable, so open to being hurt, to being abused, to not being appreciated, to not being respected, to not being cared for, to not being understood covenantal love is challenging which is why it must be grounded in the gospel of jesus christ which is how it has to be grounded in god not in your spouse and not even in yourself it has to be grounded in a greater covenantal love a greater covenantal marriage covenantal love is challenging but it is possible because of the gospel of jesus christ we love because he first loved us we forgive because he first forgave us we take sacrificial responsibility of our spouse because Jesus took sacrificial responsibility for us. He was the spotless lamb and God laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of this means that every marriage by design as a covenant is a picture of the gospel. It is a revelation of Christ. And his covenant with his bride, the church, this is what Ephesians 5 teaches. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. The only question is whether it is an accurate picture or not. The only question is, is it a good picture or not? If you are married, you are proclaiming the gospel. You are. You are proclaiming the gospel. It's not, a, it's not you know, if you choose to, you are proclaiming the gospel. The only question is, are you proclaiming the true gospel? Are you proclaiming the true gospel? If your marriage is a faithful picture of the gospel, a good picture of the gospel or not, that is the question. And that greater reality, that greater obligation, that greater love, but that greater responsibility you have is the secret to a good marriage. Because it's not just about you and your spouse. It's not just about you and your spouse. It's about so much more than that. That said, we should acknowledge here. That said, we must acknowledge here. Every human marriage falls short of the glory of God. Every human marriage falls short of the glory of God. But it is the glory of our God to heal and restore. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more so. This is the glory of the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ that God has so committed himself to sinners that he willingly made himself vulnerable, vulnerable to the point of death, even death on a cross. God kept his commitment to us, even though that it meant he would have to be nailed on a cross and die. That is the extent of our God's love for us. And it is a well too deep to fathom. It is a well too deep to fathom But it is a well that you can keep drawing buckets of love up from. (laughs) Buckets of love. Buckets of love drawn up from so that you can keep loving your spouse covenantally. Finally, we come to our third point tonight or today. Our third point God directed marriage. God defined it, He designed it, but He also gave it a name, He also gave it a direction. According to Jesus in our text, God directed marriage at something. It is a covenant that surrounds and binds a sexual relationship. It is a covenant that surrounds and binds a sexual relationship. Therefore, Jesus says in verse 5, A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Biblically speaking, marriage is a covenant commitment that is consummated with sex, that is consummated by sex. The covenant is sealed, like a seal, it is sealed with sex. The act of sexual intimacy on the wedding night marks the end of their old individual lives and the start of their one flesh union that will continue throughout their whole marriage. Sex is the end of the wedding, but it's the beginning of the marriage. Sex is the end of the wedding, but it's the beginning of the marriage. Now, so much could be said about the wonder of this one flesh union. Uh, Proverbs 30, for instance, Proverbs 30 uh, lists three things that are wonderful and a fourth that is too wonderful to even fathom. Three are wonderful, fourth, too wonderful to to be believed, to be fathomed. And, And that fourth thing, The way of a man with a virgin. The way of a man with a virgin. Sex is God's good gift to a husband and wife. It's a wonderful gift that ought to be enjoyed regularly. And I've taught whole classes on that, and this is something I get easily sidetracked on because it's something that I think we need to hear very regularly on. But it's not the message I'm going to preach today. I often talk about it, but it's not the way I'm going to go today. If you want to look up my teachings on the Song of Solomon's, the class, you can do that online. But here's where I want to go today. Sex is a wonderful gift that ought to be enjoyed regularly, but we mustn't overlook the fact that of the divinely ordained purposes for sex, the very first purpose is procreational. The very first purpose is procreation. It's a part of the mission that God gave us, again, going back to Genesis 1.28, to multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And this is what I mean when I say God-directed marriage. He defined it as a man holding fast to his wife until God separates them. He designed it to be a covenant commu- commitment, and he directed it at multiplying and filling the earth and subduing it. In other words, marriage has a mission. Marriage has a mission. Part of the problem modern Christians have is we have abandoned the mission of marriage and the mission of the family. We've abandoned the mission. You know, we say men are supposed to leave their father and mother. What for? What for? W- women are to be joining their sem- themselves to a man. What for? If you don't embrace, if you don't know and embrace the mission of marriage and the mission of family, then frequently the instructions in scripture about marriage and family just don't make sense. For example, in our day, among many well-meaning Bible-believing Christians, especially young people, but but they learn it from somewhere. They learn it from somewhere. So, among many Bible-believing, well-meaning Christians, if you ask them what is marriage, you're probably going to hear something like this. Well, it's when a man and a woman love each other a lot, and so they they decide to spend the rest of their life together. What's marriage? Well, it's it's you see, there's a guy, there's a girl, and they, they like each other a lot, and they fall in love, and they decide to spend the rest of their lives together, and maybe someday have kids. Maybe someday have kids. Maybe they exchange some vows, maybe they throw that in there after they heard my sermon today. And maybe someday have kids. If you think about it, even in Christian circles. <laughs> If you think about this, uh, so I tried to think. How do I illustrate this? The way marriage is talked about by people, by young people particularly, it is something like kind of like an awesome roommate situation, right? Like we're the best of friends, we get to hang out all the time, and now it's okay to have sex. It's like it's like an awesome roommate situation. That's marriage. The best of friends, we get to hang out all the time, and now it's okay to have sex. That's what you think marriage is. And then you're reading through scripture, and you come across these instructions about a husband being the head of his wife, and her having to submit to him. Which, if we're honest, would be a really weird roommate situation. Right? <laughs> I lived with a lot of guys in college, in a big house, and there was no leaders in submission going on there. We all just kind of did what we want, Right? So it'd be kind of a a weird roommate situation if you have to have a leader. But the point is, if you lose sight of the mission of marriage, then often the instructions about marriage don't make any sense. But if marriage has a mission to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, then it's much bigger. It's a much bigger thing than just an awesome roommate situation. It's about finding... It's about finding some place on this green planet where you can make a home, raise a family and be a witness. That's what marriage is directed at. So think about what happens in marriage. What happens when what happens, very practically, what happens when a man and a woman come together in sexual intimacy? What happens when a man and a woman come together in sexual intimacy? This is where God has ordained new human beings come into existence. New human beings who bear the image of the immortal God. New human beings who have souls that will live forever. In heaven or in hell. So the stakes are really high. Souls that will live forever. This is why, by the way, this is why you read through the Old Testament laws and you read about some pretty severe, some really severe punishment for crimes against marriage, even up to the death penalty for cases like adultery or something like that. Well, if if marriage is just this awesome roommate thing with your best friend and you get to hang out, then that doesn't make any sense. Why such a grave, why, why such severe punishments? But if marriage is aimed at filling the earth with the image of God, Populating it with immortal souls and subduing it either for God's glory or for their own glory, then the stakes of marriage are incredibly high. They're incredibly high, and seen rightly, seen biblically, we ought to say they're wonderfully high. I mean, they are wonderfully high. We get to fill the earth with immortal souls that image forth God, and we can subdue the earth for his glory. These stakes are wonderfully high, and that is because children are a gift from God. So I've got six kids with a seventh on the way. Amen. So believe me, though, when I say I have a very realistic view of children. Okay? They are not for the faint of heart. They're not here. They're in Second Service. So, uh, but, uh, you know, I think they'll say, Amen. (laughs) Kids are expensive. They are messy. They are exhausting. They take your time. And they can break your heart. And they will probably never love you as much as you love them. So I, I'm not overly romantic about children here. There's a sense in which they are a burden. But man, are they not one of God's greatest blessings. The promise to Abraham of children wasn't his curse. It was his blessing. A man like a warrior with arrows in his hand. A wife like a fruitful vine. Children like olive shoots around the table. These are the Lord's blessings they are his goodness so here's what i want to say to you and i realize this only applies to some of you but the rest of you you're in a supportive role here okay but i got to say it full throttle for those it applies to and i'm going to i'm going to do it in a way that i think speaks to you know the inner spirit of some of you are you ready here it is do you want to rebel against the status quo <laughs> <laughs> then have some kids. Then have some kids. You want people to ask you for a reason? You want people to ask you for the reason of the hope that you have within? Then have a bunch of kids and drag them through Target. (laughs) Wait, Jace, you shot up at Target? Yeah, it's my missionary field. That's the place where people are asking me, are they all yours? Yeah. Do you know how this works? That's what they ask. Do you know how this works? We've had people ask us that. No, I'm still confused. Could you help me out with that one? (laughs) There is is almost nothing more countercultural than having more children. How many? How many, you ask? I won't say. We're to fill our quivers with them. And I had a wise friend with, uh, we'll call some, we'll call them very difficult children, challenging children, who once pointed out to me that some arrows are bigger than others, and I couldn't argue with that. So, like courtship, this is a thing we shouldn't be dogmatic about. We know the Bible is pro baby. We know that marriage is a mission. It's a mission to multiply and fill the earth. Sometimes I like to highlight the fact that it does say multiply and not addition. Multiply and fill the earth. You want to know how many? Well, multiply. You want to be real literal, but I won't go there, even though I kind of did. The Bible is pro-baby. The marriage has a mission. We're to multiply and fill the earth, and God has called us to live by faith and not by sight. God has called us to live by faith and not by sight. Those are the principles... And how you practice that in your family is between you and the Lord. But if you ask my advice, with six going on seven, here's a few things I would say to you. Take it one kid at a time. Take it one kid at a time. Be open to doing more than you're comfortable with. Be open to doing more than you're comfortable with. And all you who are fostering and adopting, here I applaud you. more than you're comfortable with and remember the mission of filling subduing the earth includes raising our children in the admonition and instruction of the lord we don't want to populate the, the the earth with a bunch of pagans right that's not the goal if if there's almost nothing more countercultural than having more children then there is also nothing more important almost nothing more important than training them up in the way that they should go Catechizing them, developing their moral framework, teaching them to be compassionate towards others, committed to the Bible, and relentless lovers of God. This is the mission of marriage. In conclusion, then, I'll say this. In conclusion, let me zoom out and remind you that the Bible begins with a man lo- lonely in the first Eden. But then ends with a man happily married in the second Eden. From beginning to end, the book of the Bible is about the story of marriage. It should always be remembered that the gospel is the story of a faithful husband seeking an unfaithful bride and washing her completely clean. That is the gospel, that's the story of the Bible. It's about a faithful man, a loving husband, who never failed, who never gave up, who pursued a woman who was unfaithful to him over and over and over again. And he found her, and he brought her home, and he washed her clean, and then he married that girl. And that's what our marriage illustrates to the world over and over and over again. This world is a mess. This world is a mess, and Jesus came for this mess. He died for this mess. He was crucified for the guilt and the shame of a world at war with him so that the curse for their sin would be taken away and the only thing left would be God's blessing upon his enemies who are now his children and his bride. And this is the, this is the offer for each of us here today, that through faith in Christ, the guilt and the shame of all our sin is all the way gone. It's completely gone. And whatever comes next, whatever comes next, God is with you. And in Christ, his blessing is upon you. Let's pray. But Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of marriage. Lord, it is an amazing and awesome thing. It brings joy, but it also brings sanctification. Lord, there's, there's nothing that can take us higher than marriage, but there's nothing that can reveal the need for salvation, the need for Christ more. And so, Lord, we pray for our marriages here today. I believe that in some ways you are, you are giving us new eyes, new minds, new thinking, renewed thinking on these things, but I think you're also revealing our hearts as well, revealing sin in our marriages, sin, sinful thinking in us, Lord. And so I pray that today that the word that was preached that confronts our sin leads us to the gospel of Jesus Christ, where we can be forgiven. And being forgiven, we go from here renewed in our thinking and our love and our glorying in the goodness of marriage, all so that we can picture forth to this world the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.